Yo, what is up, everybody? This is your boy, King Mo, along with John Reyes. This is the one and only Opening Set Podcast, so I welcome you guys back. First of all, follow us on all socials at Opening Set, and that counts for Instagram, SoundCloud, MixCloud, Spotify, Apple Music, and wherever else you get the awesome podcasts uh, that fill your world. Make sure to subscribe and share. For myself, you can follow me on Instagram under HeyKingMost and SoundCloud under KingMost. For uh, John Reyes, you can find him on Instagram under Stank. Palmer and under John Reyes on SoundCloud. Again, he's got some dope remixes. And speaking of dope and remixes, today's very special guest is my man, my big bro, mentor, just awesome guy, the one and only DJ Spinner. If I had to explain who DJ Spinner is, if I was making a Mount Rushmore DJs, I would put DJ Spinner on there for sure. Beyond that, he is a crazy workhorse in terms of remixes and productions. Throws parties such as Wonderful and Soul Slam. Um, and it's just, just that dude, really just a, a gift to us all. And this conversation is really cool to see, you know, just any creative, especially a DJ, have such a clear mission statement, what they're about. And to kind of paraphrase him in this fast-moving world, it's always good to see somebody championing the past and the present and the future in regards to music. I wanted to bridge the gap between old and new. I feel like there's a lot of new artists, young artists. They're making great records, great music, but nobody's playing and nobody's championing. So I feel like I could be that voice for the unheard, for new artists, as well as playing lesser known things, obscure things, and mixing it all up. Also in the discussion, we had a really cool kind of insight on what it was to grow up black in New York City, especially during Reaganomics and post-urban renewal. I was kind of looking at it as just nostalgia, but to kind of hear the everyday kind of, you know, youth-urban culture going on is also um, like a new way to look at things. Crews running into each other between Uptown and Brooklyn warring, you know, boost downs getting slashed, rope chains getting snatched. Like, you had to be crewed up. New York was just a different place. Yeah. So imagine. I always look at the club music scene almost like as a safe haven to combat that scene you know and at a certain point there were no hip-hop venues so a lot of the hip-hop kids especially the dancers started going to the house clubs because they just wanted to dance back then that was a true melting pot in new york city nightlife like that was like the apex to me of all worlds coming together and just partying on the roof and just enjoying the music also, what it's like to be a workaholic. He's got close to a thousand remixes, official of all types of genres. So it's really cool to see the uh, the process and you know what it took and the work hours to kind of get those things out. Um, the surprise factoid that Kenny Doe has a huge hand in his career, which I had no idea. And lastly, his connection is Spike Lee, and of course, the man himself, Stevie Wonder. And just to let you all know, my connection to Spinna is being a huge fan of his music growing up as a young kid, seeing him DJ multiple times and him kind of changing my life as we kind of talk about in the conversation to also, you know, appear in somebody that I help out when he comes out to San Francisco to throw parties. I realized that as long as I've been DJing, it's really not shit. We have somebody that's been rocking since they were a teenager, done hip hop, done house, touring the world, doing all this remixes that I mentioned and still going strong and still not really having any signs of slowing down that you really can be a lifer um, if you kind of play your cards right and have like, some good luck and also a lot of talent. And if you want to stay up on Spinna, our dude, you can find him on all socials at DJ Spinna on IG. His tons of music on Spotify, iTunes, basically anywhere you can find him. All right. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the conversation. Opening set podcast, King Most and John Reyes.
What is up, everybody? Welcome to Opening Set Podcast, Season 2. I can't believe it. We made it this far, luckily, thankfully. Season 2, Episode 2. My special guest today, as you probably know, actually one of the first people I wanted to ask, a longtime friend and really probably my first DJ hero, DJ Spinner. Am I really one of your first DJ heroes? Yo, deadass. 100%. Wow. I would say next to you, Qbert, Shortcut, because, you know, they're here from the Bay. And yeah, man, I, I would say... Uh, you definitely want to. Thank you. I, I had no idea. Really? I, I never, I never gushed this story when we hung out all the time. And scratch. Technically, I'm not even close to those guys. <laughs> but oh, thanks, man. Yeah, what man. Can I say. So picture this: 1994, or maybe even later. You could check me on the dates. I go to Q's Records, which is like a very important record store at the time in Delhi City, California. I'm a little kid looking at the wall, and I see this basic black and white. You know, label and it says Jig Masters. Oh, Beyond Real. Yeah. 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 Real. And I was like, okay, let me check this out. And from there, many times later, you definitely impacted and shaped my ear. And as a DJ, first time I saw you DJ, you're playing all these like heavy 45s. You do a J Master J tribute set. You play like indie hip hop, like self scientific and your own stuff. And this is the light bulb moment. You played spinners. I'll be around. What? Yeah. Shout out to Marky Master. Like, this is in the basement of Club Six in San Francisco. Wow. And when you did that, I swear to God, a light bulb went off in my fucking head. Because I was thinking, holy shit, this is all fair game. Like all these kind of old records I would ignore and thought they were corny or like, oh, that's wedding music or whatever. You know, I was like, oh shit, I can play this and people will like it and it's all good. And you sure it was I'll Be Around Spinners? Well, that's like the big joint, right? That's one of them. Yeah, but like if you know if you're playing, you play that one, right? Yeah, yeah, I would. I would. I mean, I haven't played that record in a long time, but uh, you know, it depends on the party and the yeah. people and the, the context of the night. But that sounds like something I may have done, yeah. <laughs> depending on what the vibe was or whatever. But that, you have a crazy memory. Yeah, well, it, it was distinct. I mean, it was like again a light bulb. When like it was just basically an entire new world opened up to me. And ever since then, when I go record shopping, it's like, oh, let me not just buy hip hop and R and B. Let me look at like classics. Yeah. And try to slip those in. And that, yeah, man, it is totally a light bulb moment. So, is that always your style, like the real open format or whatever it's called? You know, I came into this DJ world ambidextrous. You know, I've always been musically multifaceted. When I started switching gears from hip hop to other things, once I came out as DJ Spinner, the DJ artist, producer, some people didn't get it. Some people did, you know, such as yourself. But I'm a music guy, you know? I grew up on a lot of soul and R&B, a lot of disco, a lot of Caribbean music. And I'm talking pre-hip hop. So that's part of my DNA. In my sets, I've always tried to champion music, period. So depending on the party and the event, you know, I do all kinds of different things thematically, but uh, I try to always keep in mind the integrity of music and what's considered classic and keep that history going because the same way you were enlightened on that night, you know, I can continue to do that because this fast moving world, people forget the roots of music across the board. So, you know, that's why I started the Sound Spectrum radio yeah, podcast which we'll talk into. Yeah, yeah we'll you know, definitely tie talk about everything that. Up. Yeah, so this is again early two thousands, and at that point, you were DJing a while. Was that the normal thing for other people, or everyone was still kind of their own? Like, I'm a DJ, aka I just play hip hop, I just play reggae. Or were you one of the? Were you an anomaly? Hmm. Good question. I'm a party rocker, so that means whatever I got to do to rock the party, I'm gonna play it. And I'm definitely old school in that way of thinking where. 
I'm going to play peak records, but then the end of the night, I want you to have a memory. And usually by playing stuff that people remembered from way back when, you send them home with that nostalgic kind of mm-hmm. feeling. Like the sing-along yeah. set. Okay. You know, it's only really in recent years that things got so much more segregated musically where, you know, people brand themselves as just one kind of DJ. Either they're dance or EDM or hip-hop DJs in a club setting. You know, I came up at a very amazing time in New York City in DJ Clubland where you had to be diverse, you know, because that's what made the party happen, you know, listening to different things. And, and what it's, the, it's all about the journey. And my first ever... Besides roller skating rinks in the late 70s, early 80s, my first official club experience was the Paradise Garage as a 16-year-old. What, you snuck in? As I, a didn't, I didn't sneak in. You know, I guess you can say I did, but they didn't card me, and you had to get in with a member. So I had an older member that lived on my block that got a few of us in, and they didn't serve alcohol, so... You know, you didn't have to worry about liquor license or you drinking at the bar. I mean, they had the, the punch bowl, which was spiked, but they technically they didn't serve alcohol. So I was able to go in and experience probably the best club setting in the history of clubs, period, with Larry LeVan and the sound system and the party atmosphere and learned a lot. <laughs> in that moment. Just that one time. That one time is so impactful that it yeah, basically set yeah, you up. Yeah, because, off. you know, I grew up, with New York Radio, WBLS to be specific, WBLS, Frankie Crocker and his programming and listening to records that he played, which was a direct reflection of what was being played in the garage. And I was buying those records as a kid, you know, stuff like Let's Go Dancing by Spark on West End. I want to thank you. I bought that as a 45. That's a garage record, believe it or not. You know, just certain titles. Uh, Can You Move by Modern Romance. Like, I was buying these records as a 12, 13-year-old kid, local record store. So I already had a vision of what that world looked like. So by the time I got to the club and seeing Larry LeVan on all these recordings for years, you go into this club and you're actually hearing the man himself playing in this crazy atmosphere you know, and I wasn't phased by the fact that I was young. I wasn't phased by the fact that there were some gays there, of course, because that was the premise of the garage initially. I mean, they had their gay night, and then they had a night that was kind of open to everyone. And I went on the night that was open to everybody. But it started off as a gay club, primarily. But for me, it was about the music. Any straight person that went there, that's really what the focus was back then. There was no phones, none of those kinds of distractions. And girls went, too. So it was really about that energy, you know. And when that club closed... I went to other club music venues in New York. I mean, I was already DJing at that time. You know, even though I didn't have a name or anything, I was what you would call the local. The little homie. (laughs) You know, the little homie on the block. Uh And you were what, 19 maybe? Nah, it wasn't even, bro. We're talking like before I went to college. So I'm talking like 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. You're like the the cool kids. You're 16 going to the garage. Yeah, I mean, I went to to the Red Zone. 1989, going to Red Zone. I saw. What's Grace. the Red Zone? Red Zone was uh, David Morales' residency. Oh wow! Okay, and David Morales for our listeners. He's a legendary producer. You know, the same era, the same kind of clock. Yeah, of yeah. Basically, DJs. I remember I saw Grace Jones perform. <laughs> and you're New Year's Eve, bro, naked, butt ass naked <laughs> at the Red Zone. It wasn't like 
it was sexy. <laughs> it wasn't. It was artistic. Yeah, it, it was, wasn't trashy. It was artsy. Yeah, you know, uh-huh. she had like body paint on or whatever, but that blew my mind. You know what I'm saying? I was like, what? I think I was like 18 years old. Yep, 18 year old boy, young man watching yeah, uh, in the club, and you know, and that was the club. That was some red velvet rope type shit. Not anyone can just go in. You know so how did you get in? Because my crew, we were fashionable dudes, and I was the youngest one. So the older brothers that I was hanging out with, cats from my hood. Yeah, you know? yeah. And Krim, believe it or not, was one of them. Krim, uh, your partner in particular. Yeah. Yeah, he criminal. was one he's of them. He's a okay. he's an ex club head, and, okay. you know, and he used to cut the rug up. But we were fashionable dudes, so you had to stand out at the door to be let in. They didn't just let anyone in. So a little Studio Fifty Four type of thing, exclusive, yeah, yeah, a little yeah, bit, yeah, kind yeah, of that. Exactly. And yeah. what year was this? When you're this was all eighty eight, eighty nine. Okay, so were you like polo out, or were you nah, wearing like gumby? It, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't really about. I mean, back then fashion was a little bit more Europeanized. Yeah, we did the low thing in the street or whatever, but. When it was time to go out, we were wearing like rayon shirts with prints and, you know, Jabot was the shit at that time. You know what I'm saying? I remember I had a pair of like cream rayon Jabot's. If there's any photos, let me see them so I can put them on Instagram. <laughs> or maybe do them yourself. My flat top was crazy high. I had like okay. an eight inch It's like, like kid and play. New, okay, I think I get an idea yeah, more yeah, or less. Yeah. You know, some brothers had the naughty headset, you know, little locks in their hair, whatever. But yeah, basically we stood out. As much as you can to grace your own performing in front of you naked. Like you, it was, <laughs> it was like the least you can do is yeah, like yeah, look yeah, all yeah. crazy I mean, fly. you know, and that was just the mode back then, you know, that was the trendy way to appear. You know, even just going to school, going to going to high school, whatever. We, well, like today, you got to look yeah, fresh. Yeah, I mean, some of that style resurged a little bit. You yeah. Know, you see that now, you know, with some of the younger generation, the preppy thing or whatever. But yeah. me and my crew, we were definitely on that. Did you crib We, we used to go to like the East Village and go buy gear, you know, clothes, whatever. Bloomingdale's when it was really dope. Of Did course, the crew have a name? Um, Kind of. Kind of, <laughs> okay. yeah. I mean, at one point, we called ourselves the Hop Force Crew. The Hot Force Yeah, hangout partners. Oh, shit. That's dope. <laughs> but yeah, we hung tough back then. South Street Seaport in New York City, Benetton, Coca-Cola, you know, all of that stuff. Shout out to the crew. Yeah. <laughs> so while you're an 18-year-old and going to your 20s, you're going to like dance music and listening to house and whatever. And then you're obviously were doing hip hop. It had to be, right? Yeah, but- I mean, that was urban youth culture. I came out of that whole thing as well. You know, we're talking about the early days before hip hop was on radio. When I first heard Rapper's Delight, for whatever the record is, novelty, you know, some of the words weren't written by certain people yeah. in the group, whatever. Something the no record was about, huge. Yeah. It was impactful. As a kid, I memorized every word. You know, there were other records like Spoon and Rap by Spoonie G, Super Rhymes by Jimmy Spicer. These were records that were in the streets, but also heard them on commercial radio. Rapping and Rocking the House by the Funky Four Plus One More. These were all records that I went out and bought as a kid. These are commercial, somewhat commercial records. There were a lot more underground records that didn't get played, but you heard these records. You heard them in the block parties. You heard them in the roller skating rinks. Because this is coming out of the disco era as well. So you had that cross breed between both worlds. In them days, like... It was so brand new. I was young. So you had to embrace it as a cultural thing, even more so than a genre of music. You know, I did a little pop locking back then. And I actually met Krim. I was first cool with Krim's brother. Big up to my man, Web One Wins. He introduced me to his brother in the form of a pop locking battle. Like, yo, you need to bottle my brother. He's nice. You know, he and Krim was nicer than me, but that's how we hooked up. And eventually he started rapping and we formed Jigmasters like some years later. But that's the origin. We became friends. Because you were popping. Because of hip hop. 
basically. Yeah, dancing, yeah, basically. Yeah. So you're basically running in two different lanes at the exact same time. You're the hip-hop b-boy thing, and you're also house music and dance club. Well, it's all, oh, it, it's all relative, man. Yeah. It's all relative. I mean, there's so many people. I mean, look, my man, shout to Charles Moore. He's maybe four or five years older than me in his mid-50s. He was the guy on my block that did all the block parties. He had a crew called the Laser Rock Disco. I'm talking about hooking up the sound system in the streets and all that to the light pole, you know, rocking the block. So he is also a huge hip hop head. If you go to his crib right now, his hip hop CD collection is bananas. He's on top of everything. But he's the guy that got us into the garage. And he used to write graffiti. So it's all relative. You know what I mean? If you're really into the music, there was no real separation back then. Maybe in the club setting, you know, the house clubs back then in the 80s may have been scary for a heterosexual man because, you know, you had the gay element. But if you really cared more about the music than anything, that didn't matter. You know what I mean? And not for nothing, like, hip-hop venues like the Latin Quarter, Latin Quarters was a scary place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I've read, like, you know what I'm saying? Know, La- uh, Union and, Square yeah. was, I didn't get to go. My crew went. I was maybe a tad bit, it's funny, like I got to go to the garage, but didn't go to the Union Square because it was scary. Like you had to really be crewed up and it didn't last that long. So by the time I probably could have gone, it was over. You know, it was probably open a year. Damn. <laughs> so that, in one year, the Latin Quarter, or Union Square. No, Union Square uh, was Union a Square. rap, but it was such a pivotal moment in hip hop history in New York City. You know, records were broken in there. I always hear the stories because my people's yeah. wet. Yeah. Clark Kent, you know, and Red Alert was rocking in there. You know, Bridges Over was broken in there. A lot of records. I always, I know the stories. I know firsthand the details, you know. Crews running into each other between Uptown and Brooklyn warring. You know, goose downs getting slashed, rope chains getting snatched. Like, you had to be crewed up. Yeah. Well, what's funny is that everyone kind of talked about the golden era of hip-hop. They say, oh, it's all about peace and unity. And like, nah, dude, it's literally what nah, you're talking about. Nah, it was rough. It was a rough time. Yeah. And plus, you know, we're talking about the crack era. There was a lot of different elements. New York was just a different place. Yeah, back then. yeah. I can so imagine. I always look at the club music scene almost like as a safe haven to combat that scene, you know? And at a certain point, there were no hip-hop venues. So a lot of the hip-hop kids, especially the dancers, started going to the house clubs because they just wanted to dance. You know what I'm saying? So you would go to some spots like The Shelter, for example, that opened late 80s, 90, 91, and you would see circles with hip-hop dancers and a few feet away would be like some cross-dressing gay person. It was really, really, back then, that was a true melting pot in New York City nightlife. Like, that was like the apex to me of all worlds coming together and just partying under one roof and just enjoying the music. And that's why today, like, there's so many dancers that made it to, like, music videos. I know some of these brothers personally, like Link, my man Link, Buddha Stretch, like, all of these guys were in the clubs partying to house, but you also saw them in certain hip-hop videos. But rest in peace, Voodoo Ray. Rest in peace to Marjorie. But they were in both worlds. They were, like, in the dopest hip-hop videos of the time, and you saw them in house videos as well. Yeah, I I never knew that. I never actually put two and two together, that the violence of hip-hop clubs, you know, for lack of a better term, somehow funneled into life of house music. Yeah, and I'm not going to sit here and say that um, the music was violent, because in fact, back then, the music really wasn't violent. It was just the elements of the street that fused with the nightlife and the environment. But music is more violent now than it was back then. 
You know what I'm saying? It's just that it was very neighborhoody. It was very crewish. And also, regan- we're talking Reaganomics. Yeah, too. it was Reaganomics. So there was that economic divide. And, yeah. But we, as a people, we really were going out to get away from the crap. It's just that, you know, sometimes you have a few knuckleheads that fuck it up <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to say also another pivotal moment I've had because of you. The first time ever was at a club and actually danced to house music was you. Really? Dead ass. It was, again, back at Club Six in the basement, another mass selector party. And at that point, I guess, you know, I was mad young. And I always, unfortunately, saw house music as this very kind of soft. I had a very problematic point of view on it. And then the way you kind of did it and playing all this house music I didn't know and it was soulful and it was great. I was like, oh, shit, I guess I like house music now. Right. Because because of you, man. So, and I, I always kind of wonder this, wondering this at the time is that, I, I guess at one point, and tell me if I'm wrong, at one point house music wasn't seen as a separate thing. It was part of like black music. It was yeah, basically absolutely. up-tempo R&D. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's disco's revenge. That's what people call it. And, you know, when the music industry basically shut disco down and the rockers shut disco down, house music was kind of like the answer to that. And at one point, music industry supported. So you had artists signed to major labels and they were given budgets, they were given videos. I mean, that's how Crystal Waters was born. You know, that's how Ten City and Diva, like all these artists had major label. And, you know, money was put behind and they blew up in Europe as well. These were pop records. I got to do the stats on this, but if I'm not mistaken, French Kiss by Lil Lewis may have been a gold record. You know, so that's how big and impactful these records were when they came out. It was part of, it was kind of becoming pop culture. And then the industry pulled the plug on that again when hip-hop started getting big as an industry. Uh-huh. It's like, well, let's put our money into hip-hop and things yeah. like that because yeah. that's where the real money's at. Right. So mid-90s, the house scene kind of went back underground, if you will, and hip-hop became big. But it was a movement. It was definitely a movement. And you saw that change with the records that were being made and coming out. Yeah. During that time. Yeah. I mean, because now it's so, kind of we're talking about the topic of conversation, it's such like its own thing. Like, I'm a house DJ. And, in, and when you say house music, you think of, you know, Guido stuff or Swedish House Mafia or EDM. But it's always, but yeah. Well, it, it depends on your mindset. If you know what house music is for real, then you won't be thinking that. But because it, be, it became so uh, commercialized and um, taken over <laughs> by other cultures, it's redefined. But what the redefinition is not the definition. And unfortunately, you know, just like techno, when you mention that name, those two genres in certain arenas, it's a bad connotation, but that's not what it is. Yeah, yeah. You know? I'm always very surprised at how distant, uh, well, maybe not as much anymore, but yeah, how it's seen as like this distant, like foreign thing. Oh, house music, techno? Like, oh, I don't know. I don't fuck with that. And it's like, dude, it's... Yeah, yeah it's, it's rooted in soul music. And unfortunately, yes. I'm, I'm kind of seeing it happen in hip hop now, in a way. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. But so, I, you know, I wanted to talk to you about, um, aside from the DJing, obviously how I got to know you was the production and specifically the remixes. So how many remixes, counting all your hip hop stuff until now, how many remixes are there's you, you're no, shaking your head. There's no way in the world I can quantify that. Are, are we talking, <laughs> are you two thousand? Man, it could very well be a thousand plus. You've done a thousand remixes. I mean, you talking 20 years of me remixing and, and going nonstop. You know, if it ain't a thousand, it's definitely close to that. Bro. It's got to <laughs> be. It's got to be. I mean, it's so much. It's stuff that I forgot about. 
you know, there's remixes that never came out. Currently, I have four remixes, five remixes to do that I haven't done. The labels are like, where's my mix? You know, right now, five, right now. And five already came out this year or more. So it's a nonstop. I guess people really revere me for transforming their music, yeah. their music, you know, which to some degree is a detriment for me because I need to be really doing more original stuff uh, for myself. But at the same time, it's been a blessing in disguise because um, some of these remixes have got like, you know, days like this. We'll talk about that for yeah, sure in a second. Know. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think, yeah, so when I first, another kind of way I got really into your music was the remixes. And I think the first one, that I, I think I saw of you was the Stakes is High remix. But you already had a bunch of underneath your belt and you continue to have remixes after remixes. And you're not just doing hip hop, you start doing R&B and obviously house. And what, jazz. At, yeah, that's right. Yeah. People calling you or management, I feel like you had something gone, just even like the early 2000s, I had a hard time keeping track. You had like a Shirley Basie thing. Yeah. And Les Nubians and Solstice. Yep. So what, what was your world like? You wake up at eight in the morning at what time and you're just getting calls, can you remix this, got it or what? Well, I had management... George Little John and Russell Johnson, big up to them, 914. They're called Purpose Music Group. But they were responsible for getting me a lot of that work in the early 2000s. Um, I had been working with them since 96. But on the hip-hop side, a lot of that was handled on my own initially. The more major label stuff, you know, started coming through them. The Stakes is High was actually my second ever remix. The Das Effects... Microphone oh, Master was the yeah. first one. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Jock Max. Can't leave out my brother. He was Basement Chemist, right? Basement Chemist, yep. Kansas City. He's definitely, um, wow, he's a treasure. Like, you know, he he doesn't really get his due. Very low-key brother, but he was instrumental in helping me, you know, get those done. I was basically trying to help him out to get his name out there because I, I was living in Kansas for a while. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, yeah. When, when, so, when was Yeah, uh, somebody I was dating back then moved. She moved to uh, Kansas so I basically went out there with her for a while and on a digging mission trying to find records, I, I learned about him and, you know, I went to this spot called Seventh Heaven. He wasn't there that day, but his man that was there was like, yo, come back the next day. You can meet Jock and he knows where the spots are. So I came back. He took me to all the local, the, just really, you know, Kansas City was crazy back then for records. It was dope. I came up crazy. And putting him on on all these records, David Axelrod and all these oh, you know, dope records. We're talking about 94, 95. Oh, when, killing me in, then. In the, oh, in the crux no. of it, you know what I'm saying? Flaming, Flaming Ember. Like sealed, dead you know, stock. Oh. The Love Break that Kanye championed and used over and over again. I was yeah. finding all those records back then. So For anyway. dollar, right? No, no $30. It's cheap, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah cheap. Yeah. So anyway, long story short, went to his basement. He started playing me you know, all these beats and I was amazed. And learned that he had a group, Basement Chemist, and befriended. We're really good friends to like close. Yeah. And that's my brother. Yeah. And some of my favorite stuff uh, is the Basement Chemist stuff that you did with him, too. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah. He's amazing. So, okay. So, like you say, you wake up Monday and, like, oh, yo, uh, we have three requests for remixes and you just nonstop working. <laughs> I, was, I was a robot back then. It was my, had and my, my studio, my first, the second thick thing in Magic Lab, it moved around because I moved, but. Um, it was a revolving door. You know, I had rappers, MCs in and out of that spot constantly. A lot of weed smoke. I didn't smoke much back then, but it was a lot of pen and pad, a lot of weed, a lot of liquor, and a lot of spitting. And me and me making beats from early. I'm an early dude, so I would get up like six, seven and start cooking. 
And I shut down by like, you know, nine ten. And I was never really a late person. But you would have your DJ gigs though, right? Yeah, but uh, you know, between ninety say ninety five to like I didn't really start touring and doing all the heavy, heavy DJ until like the late nineties. And I had local DJ gigs in New York. You know, things started really picking up, like with Jigmasters, for example, our first trip ever was to Japan in ninety seven. Not a bad way to start yeah, international and then, travel. And, and then yeah. London the next year and then, you know, for the next few years we, we traveled around a lot. And I also went on a few rockers tours. I was actually inside the rocket shit. Yeah. Damn. And I was <laughs> and that was most deaf's first DJ as well. And most deaf and I got history, Yasin Bay, because we went to high school together. So I've known he's one of my oldest friends in the game. Like I've known him, Dante Smith, since eighty seven. For any of this shit. Yeah. Before I I didn't even know he was a rapper back then. He was I was in Talent Unlimited. We went to Talent Unlimited High School. Julia Richmond, Julia Richmond Talent Unlimited. A lot of great talent came out of that school. Taj from SWV also went there. That was my own girl. Angela Hunt, who's like a huge reggae soca songwriter now. And she also co-wrote uh, Empire. The Jay-Z. The Jay-Z joint. The she, Jay-Z. Wrote, she wrote that joint. Wow. You know, she went there. A few people. But anyway, um, I knew Yasin. He wasn't even rhyming then. He was in the acting program. <laughs> and back then, you know, I think he had like a Nelly Carter. Yeah, that was like late 80s. He was on a, a Nelly Carter um, sitcom. And then he started doing Ghost Mysteries. Ghost uh, no, Bill Cosby? Cosby, Bill Cosby <laughs> Ghost Mysteries. Damn, okay. And then all of a sudden, I'm like watching Video Music Box and I see UD, UTD on the screen. Which is the original group with his brother. Yeah, Tr- and I'm Tr- like, what's or... this dude rapping? You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, I didn't even know he rhymed. And then he just, you know, walked us. Yeah, and then then... That was it. And I, and I actually went on the road with him as his DJ to promote Black on Both Sides. We did Radio City Music Hall. We opened up for D'Angelo <laughs> at Radio City. You could just stop right there, man. We did like, a lot. I, I mean, did. I'm just saying, bro. Like, come on. Let's Philly, cut the shit. Philly, Questlove was on drums on one of those sets. Met Badu during that time. Yeah, we had a nice little room. Actually, like, we went to London, too. We flew to London for a gig. 2000. That's not like a, that. this, is, this sounds like a pretty decent DJ gig. Yeah, not bad. I yeah. mean, <laughs> I didn't I didn't look at it as a gig. I, he, that was like fan. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like we and it, you know what? And it was around that time that we did the Brighter Day remix for Ronnie Jordan. Wow, that's right. right? Uh-huh. And then he was on the um Lyrical Lyrical Fluctuation remix. He did the hook on that. Uh-huh. So when you were producing music and doing these remixes, is your ear or your you being a DJ? Does that completely dominate the creative process? Or are you thinking, okay, I got to make something for the dance floor? That's always been the, yeah, no matter what genre. I'm definitely coming from a DJ perspective. Not even just remixing, but producing, period. You know, like, if you go back and listen to that first Beyond Real single, the beginning, the way it starts off, I'm thinking about the DJ cutting that beginning up. I'm envisioning how it's going to play out just from making the beat. And does that kind of give you like a pressure? Because like, ah, oh, I need to put that four bar intro or that little lead for the nah, DJ. Nah, it's not pressure. It's more an awareness and you're conscious of it every time you make something. It becomes part of the process. And have you ever done stuff where like, you know, fuck the dance floor, forget the DJ set. I'm just going to do something that just makes sense. Oh yeah, of course. If you go back and listen to like my Here to There album, you'll see moments like that. Back then, you know, Jock, I would have him intro all my records, all my full length projects. Mm. And on Alfonso's theme, which is Jock Max on that record, that track is not 
It's not a club record. It's not a DJ record. It's for listening, oral. It's the beginning of the journey. And I always look at my albums that way. Like, it's kind of crazy. It's kind of parallel with how I think about DJing, but it's beginning, middle, and an end. It's a story. It's the journey. It's the big picture. I'm, and I'm thinking ahead. You know? Yeah, exactly. Like you got the warm up, and you got the openers, and you got the peak, and you kind of yeah. do the whole send them yeah. home on a nice good exactly. vibe. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I noticed your music, aside from like the, the amount you do, is that one of the first things I really liked about that it was a sound that no one else was really doing. So I think when I first found you, a lot of the hip hop that was coming out was either like real grimy or jazzed out, but you had this kind of polish because you're like playing instruments, you're playing synth lines and bass lines and there's things echoing out and the drums are crisp, but they hit. Yeah, it's, it's a balance of hard and melodic and spacey. You know, I, yeah. back then I was definitely into synths, still am, whether it's sample synth records, you know, or my, I got a lot of electronic Moog experimental crazies, Library stuff, yeah, yeah. Library stuff or playing on top of it. Back then, I was using mostly the Juno 106 and the Juno 60. So I would create my own patches. I would actually sample the keyboard. So I would play the part, sample it, and then re-trigger it in the SP950. Wow. Yeah. So if you go back and listen to like a joint like Haunted Space Freak, that's a combination of the bass line. Like every bass note is played, but I sampled them. That's one of the most intricate beats I ever made on the low. A lot of your beats, like the composition stuff, I think that's what that would, would blow me away is that like, whoa, he's got like three samples and then he's got a synth line and he's got and a bass line and he had these great drums and little things kind of echoing in and out. Where did you get that from? Man, Was there anybody, like a DJ or producer that you are like, this is the sound? Mm, not really, man. Um, I think it's from God. <laughs> hey man, that works. Nah, it's a it's, a, div like, it's a divine force. Like I never really thought about, you know, I definitely wanted to stand out. I would say one influence I could definitely say for sure was Pete Rock. When he did Caramel City, you know, and the record that he sampled for that, and a few other records, the records that he was using, those were like trigger points for me. Those records were like, okay, I need to go out and find more records like that. And I made those records the focal point of my direction, which are Moog records, electronic records. So I, I brought all of those records and fused them in with like jazz riffs, keyboard. James Brown stabs. James Brown stabs, but also like, I, you know what? Like I always made sure I had the funk in my beat song. Yeah, that's the one thing. Yeah, Little I, vocal stabs from a funk, a deep funk record, Eddie Bow or James Brown or The Meters or Cool in the Gang. If you go back and listen, there's a joint I did. Uh, maybe I shouldn't blow myself up. Because I might... No, yeah, you yo, know, this is what the podcast is for. Bro, I didn't... You know, there's, there's the... Mr. Mr. There's Vince? Some, uh, the sample clearance thing. The floor is yours. I'm not the trying to blow... The floor is yours. The floor is yours. I'm not trying to incriminate myself. But if you go back and listen for you nerds, Hey, there. This is a podcast. You it's a nerds mean? are kind of default. You can go back <laughs> and you you hear you hear nuances of funk sprinkled in with the pretty shit. Yeah, that's what I like because you're taking covers of the hair like the old '60s, uh, you know, like musical. You're taking that and putting this like futuristic element of synthesizers all together. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what that was like such a mystery. Like hearing this stuff, I was like, where's this guy getting this idea to do things that are like literally generations apart, decades apart? 
and then making it sound like tight. I like, never thought about it that deeply as far as like <laughs> Yeah, years. Patrick, I don't know. I just like, I just put it all together and whatever sounded good to me sounded good, but I will tell you for sure that I was huge and still am huge on synth records like, you know, Electronic Moogie, Dick Hyman and Gerson Kingsley and uh, Tangerine Dream and Tangerine yeah, Dream. we're going deep in yeah, here. Yeah, all, all that, all that, all that kind of stuff. Well, it almost almost feels Craft like craft work, of course. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Well, also almost feels like the house sounds that you were DJing and dancing to and aware of those electronic sounds were still in your music, but just in a different form. That DNA was there, just kind of mutated. It just it's one, instead of one twenty, it's now ninety four. Right, but you know what's crazy is I never really sampled from house. Oh, of course not. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I yeah. just kind of used the elements that would be in a house record for hip hop. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought the whole time. It's like, oh yeah, he's doing the house thing in a very subtle hip hop way. Another thing I, I was wondering: Are you classically trained piano player? Or any not at all. Okay, I took theory. Sucked at it. Um, <laughs> I learned several instruments growing up as a kid. Like in elementary school, I took a violin. Um, in middle school, I took clarinet. In college, I took a keyboarding class. So I did get some sense of reading music. But I think it's a handicap for me to some degree because I hear music all the time. You know, I always wanted to learn theory just to be able to articulate certain things to other musicians. You know, I definitely have more knowledge now than I did back then, but I always succumb to trying to figure things out on my own. You just do it. Yeah. So all like that really dope baseline playing and synth playing. Like That's I, all off my head. It's, you're just messing you know, around. I, I think I've been blessed with tonality and making sure that things melodically work. Harmonization. I'm good with that. Okay. For sure. That's your strength. Yeah, Not technical, but Yeah, yeah. I'm good with Ear. that. I'm definitely good with that. I can tell when something is, doesn't go with something else, you know, when they're out of key. Yeah. Um, or even if they're in key, they just, it doesn't feel. It's a yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Well, I want to pivot to kind of circling back to the hip hop thing. Your first success, I think, at least for me, was your Rude Rhythms record. That everybody bounce right so and that's like a dj break that's almost like a different lane now because now we're talking hip-hop house now it's a dj well, you know what that was really my first official release when i graduated from school came home and said i'm not working for anybody i'm going to pursue music full-time so to give you a little backstory on that rude rhythms was my dj crew in college so me and my man dave ninkanza formerly known as Daddy Culture, he used to do the reggae sets and I would play the hip-hop sets and the R&B or whatever. And, you know, throughout our college career, SUNY Binghamton, he was my partner and we had this crew thing. So, And he also produced. He also he actually taught me some tidbits of studio things as well. He left before me. He's a year older than me. When I came home, back to Brooklyn from upstate New York, I lived in the studio. Like, he worked at a spot in Flatbush at a studio and I would come hang out there. He was doing more reggae stuff, hip hop reggae stuff. And we cut that record. I want to say it was the, yeah, it was the summer of 94 when we cut it, the EP. My man Hershey that used to work at Freeze Records, which is, Freeze is what the label Todd Terry ran with Will Sokoloff. And Will Sokoloff, his formal labels were Fresh and Sleeping Bag. Okay. And these far listeners are a classic 80s New York. Uh, 80s and, and 90s too. Yeah. yeah. Nice and smooth, you know, okay. just ice, you know. Yeah, big hip hop Even records. some club records too came out. All in All by Joyce Sims, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, Hershey 
I don't remember how I hooked up with him, but he was a and at the Freeze at the time. And he brought me in and we cut the record and they released it in December of that year, like really top of 95. So that was the record that kind of solidified me in the game, in the music industry, but a lot of people didn't know I made the record. Spinner was written in there, like in, in the, the credits, credit, yeah, or whatever, yeah, yeah. but it was a quote-unquote DJ Spinner record. But I definitely used it as my tool to get more work. Well, production work or DJ gigs? Production work. Because okay. it was, it was blowing, it was, I mean, Flex was killing that Master Flex? People thought he made it. A lot of people thought, because that was an era where party break records yeah. were huge in the clubs, and he was playing a lot of that stuff uh-huh. in the clubs. I love those records. I grew yeah. up on that. Those were actually big for me, too. Like, yeah. your stuff, uh, Kenny's Super... Of course, Cracker Clan, right. Uh, yeah. Quick, he came a little, they yeah, came a little yeah. later. Since you, you were a club DJ at that time, and you are from New York where a lot of these records were made, explain what these breakbeat records are to our listeners. Well, shout out to my big brother, Kenny Dope, because yes. to me, he is the predecessor of all of it. Like he started the movement with the record Super, the Easy Super Cat, Manayu Adandada. So it's basically, and Blood Vibes too. So I guess it's taking current hip hop records and cutting them up, taking the best samples, whatever, of popular hip hop records of the time and looping them and putting some kind of chant over it. It could be from a reggae record or a hip hop record, something repetitive on top of a sample, a popular sample. But my, I've always felt like my Rude Rhythms joint, me and me and my man Dave's record, was special because it wasn't typical of the kinds of party records that were being made. It was definitely... I created that with pause tape first. Like, it was a pause tape demo. But you didn't make... You, you did it on cassette? I did it on cassette first as a demo. And then I took it to the studio. And you know what? I didn't have an SP yet. Todd Terry gave me his SP-1200 as payment for that record. Wait, wait. All right. So Todd Terry, the legendary house guy, yeah. was like, yo, the record. Listen, the, listen the, the SP-1200 that Girl Our House You was made on, all those early hard house recordings that he did, that's in my possession. He gave that machine to Well, me. there you go. Thanks for coming in, everybody. That was awesome. <laughs> Bro, so Todd... <laughs> yo, and i tell you another story. So... There was a tape that was on that machine that had something written on it. It said, Todd Terry still rocks. I took that tape off. Okay. Because right? I was like, it's not Todd Terry's machine anymore. It's mine. Okay. So this was 95. In 98, me and Kenny got really cool, right? We took a trip to Portland, a record buying trip, you know, strictly a trip to dig. We went to Seattle and we dug in Portland. And I'm in the hotel room, you know, we're like chopping it up listening to some of the stuff that we bought and I'm telling him about the SB-1200 story. I told him, yo, there was this tape, the sticker that was on the machine that said, Todd Terry still rocks. He was like, yo, you know who made that sticker? (laughs) I made that sticker. I put that shit on there. I was like, wow. So it came full circle. So, you know, there's history with Todd and Kenny because Todd put Kenny and Louis Vega together. Todd had the name Masters at Work first and gave them the name you know, so there's a whole, that's a whole other conversation. Uh-huh. Yeah, so it just came full circle for me at that time. It was crazy. And, and he's your brother. Like, yeah. like I said, I see you and Kenny Dope the same way. I discovered your music and that this total embrace of all genres are equal footing. And Man, I, he I opened that. me up. So just hanging out with him in Masters at Work Studio at Bass Hit on 23rd Street in Manhattan back in the days, I learned a lot. He gave me the courage to make house. 
because he's a hip hop dude. Yeah. Let's get it straight. Like he's a b-boy at heart. His beats are crazy. He's a beat digger, all of that. His 45 collection is one of the best collections in the world. And he always told me back then, he was like, yo, when you make house beats, approach it the way you make hip hop. Make the beats hard, sample your kicks and snares from old records, make it funky, all of that. So when you go back and listen to his stuff and the Masters at Work stuff and the dubs and everything, you hear hip hop in mm. there. It's mm. definitely in there. I think that's why I liked it. It had a familiar vibe to it. Right. Not just, you know, the samples, but it's like just the feel. Like it's funky. It. Yeah. yeah, it's funky. It's like analog, yeah. yeah. Were you scared to make house music? I didn't have the confidence because I was so engulfed in hip-hop world. I had it on lock, especially in the underground. Like There was a point where I felt like you couldn't tell me nothing. You know what I mean? I had that ego, but I, confident. I was very confident because I had like all these records out. They were doing really well. You go to Fat Beats and I had like a damn near wall just full of spinner records at one point. So I felt like I was championing, but it was a new thing for me to pursue the house thing because I felt like I wasn't in the studio environment enough to understand how it was done. And then things got really more sophisticated in that world because it started being well-produced. It wasn't just about bedroom tracks anymore. You know, you had vocalists, you had musicians, especially masters. when you go and listen to Masters at Work records, it's like the cream of the crop of all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, like George Benson, they had on their stuff. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, he had, you know, proper jazz, Latin, trained musicians playing on these records. So I'm coming from like all this rawness trying to figure out, you know, my way in that world. And that jewel that Kenny gave me really helped me. And then I was able to find musicians on my own. Actually, one of the first keyboard players that I used on some of my early house remixes came from Masters at Work. Tickler? Salon. Oh, that's right. I met Salon after a Masters at Work session and got his number from Kenny and, you know, pulled him in. We got a lot of records done. So Kenny really, whether unintentionally or intentionally, is in your music DNA as well. That's my big bro. He's a mentor. Kenny Dope is your mentor. Absolutely. Motherfucker. Absolutely. <laughs> wow. But that's my big bro, but he's really a mentor. I mean, he's jeweled me on so much when it gear, music industry, records. Oh, records, forget it. That's number one. The stuff that I learned about records from him are out of control. All right. So now that you have this kind of like confidence to go pursue house music, were you doing gigs as a house DJ? Like, yo, I'm going to go do a house music party. Or okay, still... so so here's the thing with the house thing as a DJ. So even in my college days, I was killing house sets. Killing them. And you got to remember, this culturally, club-wise, this was a time when house music was so big. So the party was probably 60% house. Oh, all right. You know, back then, we're talking 88 till about 91, 92. Really short span. But house music was killing the clubs and it was killing the parties. So I would take trips down from upstate New York. Well, let me backtrack even more. One of my homeboys, he used to come home more than me because I was working. I was playing a lot of parties in school. But he would take trips home and go to the shelter Okay. Right? Timothy Registers. Timothy Registers Club, which ironically, we're friends now. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> there was a point in time where I never thought I could call Timmy Registers a friend. Must be nice. Anyway, yeah. he would come and listen to what was being played, then go to Rock and Soul the next day and buy what he could from what he heard and bring them back upstate to school and give them to me. Like, yo, this is what I heard this weekend. Take those. So whenever I couldn't come home to go to the store myself to cop, he would come, peep what's happening, get the records, and say, yo, this is hot in the club right now, and bring them up uh -huh. and hand them. And, you know, 10 years or whatever, X amount of years later, he's your boy now. He's yeah, your, Timmy. He's is, one of your bros. He's a dear friend. 
Doesn't that kind of like blow your mind that how DJing, and maybe maybe you never thought look, about that. But DJing. it goes beyond. I mean, look, even Kenny. I mean, I was playing hella masses at work records back in those days, man, because they were killing it. Between them and David Morales, they were like the dudes doing all the remixes for all the artists, all the major labels, getting big budgets. This is when the labels were spending forty, fifty thousand, sixty thousand dollars on remix budgets. So giving a DJ sixty racks to go remix a song yes. that they probably already put. But yeah. but it balanced out because the records sold and they did well and they charted. These were big records. So anyway, I would have never thought back then that I can call Louie and Kenny Dope on the phone. Like on some up, regular conversation. Let's get a sandwich. Yeah, yeah, just hang out, whatever. Timmy, same thing, you know? And even some of the hip-hop legends that I've worked with and met, you know? Like, come on. Q-Tip, Scratch. I idolized Scratch as a kid. Him and Cash Money were like my DJ hero. Him and Jazzy Jeff, too. All friends now. Because of this DJ shit, this producer Yeah, shit. it just comes full circle. Yeah, so I wanted to ask, so tell me the before and after of when days like this hit. Because I'm sure people... that Was it like a revenge for you? Like, yeah, mm, now. Nah, you know, I... I I always look at everything that I do in my career as stepping stones and, you know, humble steps in forward, upward mobility. You know, I don't force things. I'm like, if people don't see it now, they will see it at some point. So I don't think I was taken seriously in the beginning when I started doing house clubs because I was definitely getting that out. He's a hip hop DJ kid. But once people heard me play, it just changed everything because they understood that I understood the roots of the music and where it comes from. These people don't know that I went to the garage at 16 years old. They don't understand that I have that background. you know. So days like this and other records around that record that came out early 2000s kind of solidified me in that world. And then being the DJ that I was that can execute proper house sets in the context of what it's supposed to be with that community. Because I also learned a lot from going to the clubs and just studying. Studying Tony Humphrey, studying Louis Vega, studying Francois K, studying Timmy Regisford. As you're Diesel doing Mark. these gigs or just when you're just starting out in the beginning? Both. You're doing research, you're staying on yeah, top of Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll take it even further back than that, you know, because... I've always wanted to be a DJ even as a kid. So when I'm like seven, eight years old listening to the radio when disco was big, 81, 82, the master mixes on Kiss FM, Shet Pettibone, T. Scott, like all these amazing DJs that were doing blends, putting two records together. I was recording these to cassette and listening back. Marveled, wondering how do they do this. So you're you know? a lifer, man. Yeah, I'm a lifer. Uh, yeah, <laughs> going going to block parties, any party that I can go to where there's a DJ, I'm right there. Front row. Front row, watching and studying everything. Yeah. You know what? And I'm still like that. I'm still a kid. I still feel that young fire. My wife bugs out on me all the time because sometimes she doesn't get why I'm in a rush to go to certain clubs or the urgency because I still get excited to see my favorite DJs play just to see how they transform the crowd. Like that still excites me. Yeah. And just the whole, like, I always felt like the opening set of a DJ says a lot about who they are. There's a lot about their music knowledge, their taste, understanding the flow of a night. And that's when you kind of really see like, okay, what, anyone can play hits. We all yeah, can do that. But yeah. what do you do to set that up? Yeah. Yeah. Setup is important. Story is important. Yeah. Do you still get nervous when you DJ? Depends. When I play for educated music crowds where you can't give them the okey doke and just play whatever, 
those are the most challenging because you have to do your homework and you got to come correct or you face the backlash. But I care so much about what's happening on the dance floor. I'm a big energy person. I always monitor vibes and energy. You know, I channel that first. I've gotten to the point now where when I'm spinning, I don't necessarily have to look at the crowd to see what's happening. I feel it. And I can change what's happening based on pure emotion, no matter what the set is. I got to feel and hear the crowd. And I feel like that's a lost art. You know, I feel like so many people, especially with technology and the way people consume music these days and learn about music these days, like they don't have that club history, that club experience where there's bodies that all they want to do is dance and the DJ has the power, the real power. People go out now for different initiatives, different purposes, you know, and they want to hear what they know. DJs are comfortable. They just, they program all their sets in Serato or if they're, Whatever, like they just have everything pre-programmed and there's no real free format anymore. You know what I mean? Like the class of DJs that I'm in now, like my brothers Rich Medina and the likes, like we understand music. And I think it takes a lot these days to play like that, to play with that kind of understanding because so many people have programmed themselves because of how society is right now. Like mm, Instant, everything's instant, yeah, immediate. Yeah, 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 whatever's hot. And you know what, like, that actually had an effect on me. I was doing a lot of club dates in New York City, and I noticed the change at a specific time. You know, there was definitely a transitional period in urban music settings. Not necessarily house settings, because house is a different thing when it's just that. But when you're playing hip-hop, R&B, that kind of vibe, I noticed a transition, like, in the late 90s, 98, 99, where... I had to make a decision if I wanted to be that commercial mainstream DJ or the free format, open-minded, you know, play good music DJ. Because people started coming and they wanted to hear the same records. I started getting requests for the same records every week. Like, it literally changed in a matter of two years. So the problems that kind of working DJs were facing or still face about requests, yep. you were now getting I those. Was, yeah, I was right at the beginning of it. Okay. I was in the midst of it as it was changing and happening. And that, I would say, parallels with what was happening in the music industry as well. Because the radio stations now, I mean, all of this, you know... Clear channel, corporatized. Yeah, yeah. all of this, like, you know, only one playlist stuff, it started happening around that same exact time. And was that kind of like a personal crisis for you? Like, I don't know what to do. I need to change it up. No, or, well, you were good. I, no, I think I was good because I was already. You know what? I got to bring it back to house music again because around this time I started going to Body and Soul. Kenny Dope actually took me to my first Body and Soul. Damn, dude, Kenny really is your man. Yeah, we okay. hung out uh-huh. and I started getting back into house records. I I stopped buying house for a while. Like I was deep into it in the beginning, eighty six, eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven. Because I always had older dudes around me telling me, yo, you need to start messing with this. This is hot, whatever. And then when the scene died around 92, 93, 94, hip-hop started getting big. And the house scenes started to die out in New York. They went back underground and started being more like smaller parties. I got out of it. Then I started making hip-hop, started putting all these records out. They were doing really well. The J-Lives and, you know. Oh, Alpha Edge. Yeah, all that stuff. So I was removed for a while. But when I went to that Body and Soul party, 
that was one of the driving forces for me to get back into it because it felt good. It just felt right. Yeah. It was a godsend. It was just perfect timing. And also traveling, going to England, going to Japan helped me a lot to open up because I saw how music was received over there as well. It wasn't as segregated over there either. You know, yeah, of course you had your underground hip hop movements, which were big, but for the music lover, they loved everything, especially in England especially in London, Manchester, those cities. So I started to have a more open mind when I realized, you know, you had all this broken beat, new jazz stuff that was coming out, out of the UK, out of London. I was like, man, this is far more interesting. And started meeting some of the producers, Mark DeClave Lowe, Digo, and that became really yeah. cool. Um, Phil Asher, you know. I was like, man, there's more to it than this. Like, I can't just be this mainstream Club banger dude. Club banger dude. Because it's boring. You know, playing the same records every week is corny. And the records, to me, started getting corny, formulaic, you know. And then the birth of Wonderful. Which I was, we're definitely getting that. In, you know, and then Soul Slam. Like, oh, I was like, oh, forget it. You know, I have my own lane now. Oh, yeah, I don't definitely don't have to do those things, those parties anymore. Like, I'm good. <laughs> well, let's jump into it. So, you know, you've been doing Wonderful for a total of how many years now? Wow. Uh, 20? No, 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 not not quite 20 yet. Since 2001. Okay, and then Soul Slam since? 2002. Okay, so roughly the same time. And has your purpose or your vision for doing these parties changed? How, if at all, in these past, you know? Mm, no, I would say it's gotten more important over time to keep the names and legacies of these people alive. You know, Stevie's still with us, but, you know, we lost MJ and Prince. And yeah, there's been a lot of knockoffs and I feel like I definitely inspired the versus party. You know, I didn't really see versus anything before the Soul Slam events. I mean, I, you know, I, yeah, I'm not saying no. Yeah, hey, you know. It is what it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. cool, you know. I feel like it's still necessary for me to do that, you know, and no one can do it like me. So I got to <laughs> tell them. I got to flex keep on events. I got to keep, keep, keep it going. Yeah. So it's not just like I want to celebrate these artists' music, but it's now I have to make sure that people don't forget. Yeah. You know, and Stevie put that in my ear a long time ago. He's like, I really appreciate this. You don't have to do this, but I would like you to keep doing it. Oh, hold on. So Stevie Wonder co-signs your DJ party. Well, actually, of course, he has you DJing for like UN. He, he, I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's employed me. I've rocked with him. Yeah. You know. Do you kind of trip out about that shit still? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, so he's my friend. Whatever, no big deal. Like, okay, he's my buddy. Whatever, Stevie Wonder. You know, I, I trip out over the fact that I can even call him. I would like you to call Stevie, but no, nah, it's silly. You were talking earlier about your wife, and I want to talk about your family aspect. I see you now as like Vince, the father and like dedicated husband. Yeah. At the same time, Spinner as well. Yeah. So your wife is also your manager, and she kind of helps you along. She's not my manager. She's love your life. She would definitely not approve of that word. Okay. <laughs> um, she is like my best friend slash somewhat assistant. You know, we work together. That's what I'll say. She definitely wouldn't approve of me saying she works for me. No, 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 no. You know what I mean? But uh, she helps me out. She helps me out, and I have an agent in Europe that takes care of that for local stuff. Either I'll handle it myself or if it's a little too detailed, I'll have her get in touch with whoever uh -huh. to fulfill. But the Soul Slam and Wonderful Parties are our brainchild and she is 100% the full force, especially in New York, promoter, 
She handles all of that. Since we have kids now, like I may be the one that may have to facilitate venues, but when it comes to promoting it outside of social media, she does that. All the emails, you know, all of that stuff. I used to joke on her back in the days when we first started seeing each other because I couldn't walk the street and somebody not see her that she knows. Like I felt like she was literally the president of Brooklyn. She knows a lot of people across different walks of life, regular folk, industry folk, healers, non-healers, crazy mofos, whatever. She just knows a lot of people. And we first connected before we started seeing each other and all of that. First of all, I've known her since the 80s. She's from my hood. We're from the same neighborhood. And she knows my crew, you know, all came up together. And we crushed on each other since then. But uh, before we started seeing each other, I DJed for her. She had a party, a little, little house party, you know, and I was a DJ. And you were feeling her. Yeah, well, we had we crushed on each other. Okay, you know we okay. Were, we were crushing. So this might be one. Of the, this <laughs> might be one of the most important DJ gigs of your life. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we crushed. We crushed. You only we were, married her. Yeah, we were, we were at least started we with her. Crushing. She was trying to play hardball with me in the beginning. She uh-huh. was trying to front like she didn't. You know, she wasn't whatever. But what did you play for your future wife's party? What was in the set? Oh man, that was what. I'm not trying to drop the year, but it was <laughs> definitely '90s and. I mean, it was still fun times, man. That's when you could still get away with, you know, dropping some boom bap 90s hip hop and some classic R&B and even some house at the end and some reggae too. Yeah. I, was, I was definitely versed in dancehall and reggae at one point. Nice. You know, I was up on it hard. Okay. That's a proper Brooklyn party. Yeah. Playing all of that shit. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's, it has to be for your future wife, mother, your Yeah, mother, she's, your t- she's a music head. She's a music head too. Oh, that's yeah. so dope. And she's a club head too. Oh, okay. Yeah, she's so, a house head. She knows all the house classics and all of that. Both of you don't go to clubs together? Or... I mean, of course we do. I mean, we're a couple. We're married. But she comes from that element of going to house clubs. She went to the garage also. I guess that's part of the thing. That's one of the things that, you know, attracted us to each other. She comes from that element of New York City nightlife. She parties. If she had a her way, she'd probably still be in the clubs every, every <laughs> night. But she's not physically able to do that because yeah. we have responsibility. I might see her output one night. Like, yo, what's up? Yeah, she's <laughs> definitely more, I'm, I'm more the homebody. She's definitely okay. more the socialite hangout. She's that person. It's a good combination, man. Yeah. All right. And then this is the question I ask some of our guests. You know, let's say you got to get hyped, you get focused, you're going to go work out, you're going to go get your day started. What is a song that you play that gets you in the zone? Dude, actually, I don't. What? What do you mean? Yo, you know what's crazy? I take breaks from music. Huh. Yeah. You know what? And if anything, what I would listen to is something brand new that I need to learn and, you know, learn about it, learn the record, you know, like, like the last time I um, worked out at the crib, I listened to the internet's new album, either working out or driving in the car. Like that's the best time to learn because I don't have that much downtime anyway, you know, between being a family man and studio time and all of that, like I don't really have Doing much. Podcasts. <laughs> yeah. I don't have much time to actually consume music. You know, which, again, going back to the radio podcast, Sound Spectrum, which is, you know, one of the main reasons I started doing it is because I wanted to bridge the gap between old and new. I feel like there's a lot of new artists, young artists. They're making great records, great music, but nobody's playing it and nobody's championing it. So I feel like I could be that voice for the unheard, for new artists, as well as playing lesser known things, obscure things, and mixing it all up. Like, one of my first shows, I was playing Joni Mitchell. I was playing... Jimi Hendrix, 
but I was also playing Gwen Bunn. Yeah. I was playing Tyler the Creator. You're playing Creator. King. Yeah, that's You're playing that, that, King. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like just a mosh pit and house too. Like everything. <laughs> so some things haven't changed. You're still that put it all together and make yeah, it work type of dude. I mean, I think it's important. You know, music is such a universal blessing and there's so much of it out here. And then with these phones and these devices, we have the options to program Spotify and make our personal playlists, Apple Music, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But to me, there's still, you know what? I think classic New York radio had a big impact on me in that way. Because, for example, Frankie Crocker on BLS, he played everything from the OJs to James Brown to Nina Simone to the first time I ever heard The Police, he played Voices Inside My Head in 1980, summer of 1980. And that record blew me away, you know? I went to the local record store and bought that album and I saw three white dudes on the cover. I was like, what in the world is this? But that was New York radio back then. You know, he played everything. So with that mindset, it kind of relayed to me that, yeah, I think there's a generation that's void of that kind of programming. You know, things got so stringent. Singular. Yeah, over the years that, you know, and then I hear so many complaints about, yo, hip-hop is so whack now. But it's still good hip-hop out here. Totally, 100%. Listen, if you like hip-hop, but you also like soul, and you like rock, and you like jazz, and you like, you know, I know a lot of people like me. Why don't I create that lane that allows for people to have this kind of listenership? Why not? Yeah, you know you're like I mean? passing the baton. So your experience, you're trying to replicate that for other people and keep that yeah, legacy alive. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I hate my voice, first of all. I probably, <laughs> I probably will never listen back to this show. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> I, Thank you very much, dude. <laughs> um, and I don't listen to my shows. Like, I'll do them, knock them out, put uh -huh. them up online, and don't... You hate the sound of your voice? I, I, yeah, I used to rhyme, too. What? Yeah, I was actually... And I think I was a pretty good rapper. I think I had flow and everything. But because I hate my voice so much, I can't stand the playback. But I'm just doing these shows, man. Just putting it out there. And, and it's called... Sound Spectra. DJ Spinner Sound Spectra. Yeah, and, it's on, and I've heard a bunch of episodes on Mixcloud and whatnot. Damn, dude. Rapping, popping, DJing, remixing, throwing tribute parties, father of two, record hound. Am I missing anything else? Proud Brooklynite. Stevie Wonder's favorite DJ. Well, he has another DJ now. Oh, all right. Well, <laughs> shit. And his top two. Listen, Fuck, listen, that's more than anybody I, I, else. I've championed this music for almost two decades. So I think I have a special place in this. Okay. Heart, so so what is, okay. So then what is next? Like I, I just rattled a bunch of things off. What is next for you? Um, I'm starting to conduct interviews of my own. Roller Room was trying to start this breakfast with series with various DJs conducting their own shows or whatever. And I did two interviews. One was Leroy Burgess. Second one was Molly Maul, and they dropped the ball on those shows. And I was like, man, and I got so many good, I got great feedback from those. So I was like, you know what? Let me rekindle this fire, do this on my own. I have connects to so many people. These are your contemporaries, your yeah, friends, your yeah, friends. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to continue to do this. So I've done two already. I haven't posted them online yet, okay. but I'm going to continue to do that. And I have a list of people already that I need to reach out to. So that's my next thing. Yeah. Historian. Yeah. Damn, basically. bro. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I have a few other things that I want to accomplish as well, but the music is not done either. Like, no. I'm overdue for an album. Way overdue. And I've been working on one for a while. I just need to um, buckle down. You know, I got sick early this year. Yeah. And that was a little drawback. 
life hurdle. These things happen. But yeah, I've got to get back in the lab. Uh-huh. So <laughs> when you record these you know, episodes, are you not going to listen to those as well? Or <laughs> you well, might have to, I, man. Well, I'm forced. I'm forced to at least the visual ones because they're videotaped. Okay. It's live recorded in front of an audience. So yeah, you'll see. The Easy Mo B one is really dope too. I had him come on the uh, show with an SB1200. Oh, and started playing stuff. Yeah. And for our fans, Easy Mo B is a producer of Craig Mack, Biggie. Tupac. Yeah, he had, wow. uh, he okay. had, uh, first of all, he was the uh, last producer to work with Miles Davis. Okay, damn. Do Bop song. Not bad. He's got, I guess he might have some stories too, huh? Yeah, oh well, yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Right on, man. Anything else you want to mention real quick? Yeah, I don't know if I should mention the uh, Spike Lee thing yet. Let's talk Spike real quick. Yeah, we should talk Spike though. Let's we talk Spike. Mentioned Spike at all. Yeah, this is what these are for. Yeah. So I've been working with Spike for almost a decade. And it started off with Michael Jackson's untimely passing in 2009. He wanted to start having these birthday parties in his honor. And he was looking for a DJ. A few people uttered my name to him as, you need to get this guy because he's already been doing these you know, tribute parties for Michael. And I believe the rest is history, man, really. Like, it wasn't an audition or anything. He just hired me. And did he know, like, your rep? Like, oh, you're spinning I don't really... Th- um, He may have come to one party that I did that year before the actual first BK Loves MJ in Prosper Park. But he didn't really know who I was. So, though he's like Mr. New York, Mr. Brooklyn, and you're born and raised Brooklynite, he still had no idea who I you mean, were. I mean, you know, I'm not necessarily the most mainstream commercial DJ, you know? I'm Worldwide Underground, like the Erica Badu album. You know, I'm Worldwide Underground. So, I'm a niche, tastemaker DJ. So, you got to know. Either you know or you don't. And he didn't. You know, I was referred, and, you know, you're going to learn today. He learned. <laughs> and now... You know, I'm in there. You know, I've been doing all his release events for his films. And, you know, he flew me out to Cannes this year to play uh, for the release of Black Klansman, the world premiere of the film out there. The BK Loves MJ 8th Annual just happened in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. That was amazing. Damn. Crazy. All because you decided to do what you wanted to do, be this niche underground artist with worldwide appeal. Well, the underground part is not, purposely done it just ended up that way because i'm so anti <laughs> hey i think you know? you'll be all right i think yeah, you got yeah, this yeah. i think you got this my dude i'm so anti it's basically like if i can't do what i want or up top i'll stay on the bottom and do what i want and make waves the way i need to make it for myself and survive like that i'd rather call my own shots and be in my own lane than to sacrifice my soul on the other side you know, I've always been that way. And it's, you know, to some degree, I, I felt like, because, you know, in the hip hop world, I felt, I feel, still feel to this day that people don't recognize me as one of them dudes, like the premieres and the Mad Libs and the Pete Rocks. But I know I'm just as good. You know what I'm saying? Like, I've never been given a shot to produce someone on that level you know, that level of notoriety in mainstream hip hop world. And it could still happen. I'm not ruling it out, you know, but I'm, you know, I'm good. You know, I think I made some pretty dope beats and dope records in the last 20 years. You know, I worked with some of my favorite rappers, you know, Eminem, Pharaoh's one of my all-time favorite MCs. I tell him that every time I see him. Elzai, you know, had him on my my last full full hip hop album. Stevie Wonder. 
Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. come on. Well, that's, well, that's, that's, yeah, that's Prince different. come to your party, I'm sorry, one time. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, Prince came to your You've done all right. Yeah, you've done all right. Yeah, you you spent right. an hour and a half talking with a friend strictly about listen, your accomplishments. So listen, I think you've done okay. I, I, you know, if Stevie Wonder flies you out to hang out with him and go to his studio and go to his crib and eat dinner next to him with his glasses off, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. And on that note, thank you so much, Vince. Thank you. Spina, thank you. Thank you for this time. I'm, you know, like I said, the stuff I said about you earlier, how you've been very impactful to my life, is real as hell. And I'm always happy to have you around and take you out record shopping and to uh, share the stage. Speaking of which, yes, let's go. Let's go get record shopping, my man, <laughs> DJ Spin, everyone. Yeah. All right, man. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. <laughs>